chapter 13 starts off the third and final section of the book in Acts, which is the expansion of the gospel. Now it's the expansion of, God, of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Now, some theologians call this the beginning of the missionary era because this is where we see all of uh, Paul's three missionary journeys and the gospel spreading to the ends of the earth. And it started with the Roman Empire. So we're going to pick up at the end of chapter 12. You might have noticed last week, if you looked in your Bible, that we didn't do verse 25 because it kind of goes with chapter 13. So it says this, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, and they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. So now what's happening here is base camp for the believers outside of Jerusalem was Antioch. If you remember back in chapter 11, believers ended up in Antioch due to Stephen being killed in Acts chapter 8. Now, people, uh, people with no Jewish roots were becoming believers, so Barnabas went to, uh, was sent to check on them. If you remember, Barnabas, son of encouragement, he went to check on them, and he went and he encouraged the believers. Then he went to get Saul, and then Saul came back to Antioch with him, and he spent a year there. And this was that, in that passage where it says the believers were first called Christians at Antioch. So there's going to be a few things that I want to point out about the church in Antioch that made it so effective that we can learn from. The first is this. It was already established. So by Acts chapter 13 now, this was already an established church. There are many benefits to an established church. I mean, there's many benefits to starting a new church, like the newness, excitement, and stuff. But there's many benefits to being involved in an established church. We are blessed here at our church because we have a paid-off property, a paid-off building, which allows us to put more money towards ministries and missionaries. So we are blessed with that. We also have a great theological history of standing firm on the gospel. So when you're part of this church, obviously you are, but when newer people come, they could see an established church that actually is solid in our theology. Next, this church had many teachers. They're named here in verse 1. Now, this is important for the church. And one of the criteria of biblical church leaders is that leaders should be able to teach. All these leaders here in this church were able to teach and taught in different contexts and ministries there in the church in Antioch. All our church leaders here are able to teach, and they all teach in different contexts of the church. But next, the church here in Antioch actually reflected the community. Now, race and socioeconomic status, basically the Roman Empire was kind of a melting pot of different groups. A lot of those groups did not associate with one another. But in the church in Antioch, they actually did. All were welcome. No matter race, status, socioeconomic status, they were all welcome. You know, churches, local churches, should really reflect the community that the church is in. 
we have a multi-generational church which reflects our community. So we see all the age groups in our church. If a church is only focused on just young people, or if a church is only focused on just senior citizens, it actually doesn't reflect the community. And the temptation, right, for us is to stick with people that are like us, right? Stick with our age group, stick with our race, stick with whatever it is. But you know what? The, the truth is that churches should be multi-generational. Now we're going to move on, and let's look at what happens next. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the next thing we see about this church in Antioch, it was a worshiping and praying church. Now, this is a huge part of church, obviously. This is a huge part of church. We're not a social or activities club, although the Bible does tell us to fellowship, so we do social things, we do activities, but that shouldn't be the purpose. We're not a club, right? So we have to remember the center of our existence is what Jesus did on the cross. The center of the church's existence is what Jesus did on the cross. If we have no cross, if we have no sacrifice, we're just a club. And there's plenty of clubs to be involved in, right? There's plenty of clubs to be involved in. But the church's sole existence is because of Jesus and what he did on the cross. So when we come together, what do we do? We give him praise. We give him worship. We seek guidance from him. Now, the way the early believers did that was worshiping and fasting and listening for guidance from the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke doesn't go into detail how they actually heard from the Holy Spirit. It just says they heard from the Holy Spirit. So let's kind of break this down a little bit. The first thing was they worshiped, right? They were worshiping together. Now, you'll notice this. The entire service on Sunday is worship. You know, we, sometimes we make the mistake like of just saying the music. That's the worship part. Well, the entire service is worship. Do you realize that? We worship in song. We worship in communion, which we're going to observe today. We worship in corporate prayer. We worship in hearing God's word. And we worship in giving. This is a worship service. So, and, and you know, some people have said, like, why do we say I'm going to church? say, I'm going to worship. Church is the building, right? Or church is the people, really. We're coming here to worship on Sundays. Now, one of the things they did was they were fasting. Now, some of you might ask, what is the purpose of that? Well, let me just explain to you. A biblical fast is foregoing food for a time in order to spiritually focus and seek guidance. Let me say that again. It's in order to spiritually focus and seek guidance. It's not like, oh, maybe I'll do a, a fast and I'll take off a few pounds, you know, and I'll look at, that's not the purpose of fasting. The, the purpose of fasting is to laser focus. It's personal. It can be done for an entire day or maybe multiple days, or it can be just one meal. But the idea is focus on the Lord and pray and seek guidance, okay? So if you're going to fast, part of that fasting is actually getting by yourself and praying to seek guidance. You're not just like, okay, I'm going to get up, I'm going to skip breakfast this morning because it's a fast. And then you don't pray, you don't seek guidance, you just skip the meal, okay? That's not fasting. So fasting is laser focus in prayer to seek 
guidance. In our high-paced culture and society, we are very connected, right? We have our phones and our devices and everything. We have TV. So maybe you might choose to fast some of that stuff, okay? It doesn't have to be localized to just food, right? It, you can actually fast, like you can go on a media fast and just say, you know what? I'm not going to use my phone. I'm going to check it in the morning to make sure everything important is taken care of, and then I'm going to put it aside all day. What, whatever you decide to do, the, the, the purpose is this. Depriving yourself of something so that you can focus in on God, his word, and seeking guidance from him. So the normal time that you would fast is a time like this where you're seeking guidance. So the believers at this time didn't have the full New Testament. I mean, we have something actually, when we look at their time, we're like, wow, that must have been an amazing time. Well, the truth is we live in, in somewhat of a more amazing time because we have the, the, the entirety of God's word. So in some senses, these early believers were just like, we don't really know what to do right now. So they were laser focused and they were asking God, what should we do next? What should we do next? They know they had the Great Commission, bring the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. But where is that? Where should we go? What should we do? So they were really laser-focused at this point. But this doesn't mean we don't fast, right? Because we have the scriptures. But there's, because there's plenty of examples of believers in the scriptures. But we also know that we do have the scriptures and we can go to guidance in many different areas that they were maybe unaware of at that time. The second reason was because they needed specific guidance. Now I want to spend some time here. Specific guidance to fulfill the Great Commission. Now this is important because the Bible gives us general guidance, right? The Bible gives us general guidance, but the specifics are different for each of our lives. We know generally what's true and what we should do or what we should not do, but things like who should you marry, where should you live, where to work, what ministry should I serve in, these are all specifics. And in some cases, there might not even be a right or wrong, right? It might just be an either or. And then you're like, what do I do? What's God's will for my life? How do I figure this out? Well, this is a good time for you to, to really get specific with God. Should I do this or that? Should I move here or there? Should I work here or there? Should I marry this person? Should I volunteer for this ministry? Should I stop working in this ministry? Whatever it is, you need to get with God and ask him specifically so that the Holy Spirit can guide you. But here's an important principle that we learn from this passage. When we're looking for guidance, we pray along with fellow believers for validation from the Holy Spirit. Now, this is where, as a church, we together have fellowship with other believers and can actually glean some guidance from them because they're praying as well. Now, this right here in Acts, it's ministry specific in this passage. But we can apply this to what ministry we should do. What ministry we should do. Like, for instance, you may want to volunteer for a ministry or start a ministry. You start praying about it. You feel led to do it. The next step would be go to church leaders and mature believers in the church and share that 
desire, or passion with them. And ask them, pray along with me. Pray along with me. I feel that God is leading me this way. Pray along with me. If they come back to you and say, yes, I believe that God desires you to do this, you receive validation, right? You receive validation. Now, some people balk at this. They're like, well, if I feel like God wants me to do this, nobody should stand in the way. Well, the truth is, if you feel that God wants you to do this and you believe those believers also have the Holy Spirit or those church leaders or those mature believers in the Lord also have that, why would you be afraid to ask? Because obviously the same Holy Spirit's going to whisper in their ear as well and say, yeah, that's good. And one of the things you'll know about this church, many of you know this, we're very permissive. We want people to do things. We never want to stand in God's way of somebody doing ministry. But guess what? If they come back to you and say, I'm not so sure, or I have some concerns, it's probably time to hold off. Well, why? Because ministry decisions we make are not just regular decisions that just impact us, but they impact a whole fellowship believers. They're spiritual, and if the Lord is not in them, guess what? You're spinning your wheels. You're spinning your wheels, or you're actually depriving another ministry that you could have been involved in because you pulled away from that. The Holy Spirit will use fellow believers in our lives to validate the ministries we should be doing. No leader seeking God's guidance would ever stand in the way of what God calls you to do. No leader seeking God's, because we all pray to the same God. So no leader seeking God's guidance would ever stand in your way. If you're seeking God's guidance and you bring that to a mature godly leader and the people, and they can't validate or support the ministry, you should heed to the concerns. Because for some reason, there are concerns. So now Barnabas and Saul, they're called out by the Holy Spirit with a validation from the fellow believers. It doesn't just say that it was those named, okay? This was the church. I mean, they were praying about this. What should we do? We have to fulfill this great commission. Who are the best to send out? Who should we send out and where should we send them? And you know what? This was probably pretty hard or would have been pretty hard for these believers if they didn't feel led by the Holy Spirit. Because guess what? We see through Acts, Barnabas and Saul were pretty amazing ministers, okay? So basically, it's like saying, let's take the best of what we have in the church, send them somewhere else. How would you feel about that? Oh, we get second string now? <laughs> you know what I mean? Obviously, God's going to take care, and these believers had faith that God would take care. So this call would not be possible without the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me remind you, when you are serving the Lord you receive power to do the work that the Holy Spirit has called you to. Because another thing, maybe you're even afraid to seek guidance because you're afraid of what you're going to have to do or what God's going to call you to do because you don't feel equipped to do it. Well, let me just tell you, if God is in it, if he calls you to do it, he's going to give you the power to do it. And I can tell you firsthand, from me personally, I've been at the church, I think it's 28 years now. I started when I was 20 years old as a youth pastor. And there were so many times along the way that I was called to do things that I was like, I don't know about this, okay? I don't know about this. And I can tell you, one of those things was standing right here doing what I'm doing now. I was like, no, no, no. <laughs> 
I do not want to prepare an oral report every single week. But God said, that's not for you to decide, okay? That's for me to decide. So this is why we give God the glory. This is why we give the God the glory for building the ministry, placing the people in where we and they need to be. So let's look next. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went to Seleucia. And from there, they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. So by the guidance of the Holy Spirit, they sailed out from Seleucia, which was the port near Antioch, and went to Cyprus, Salamis, and Pathos. And we're going to see that in a few minutes. They started preaching there, and John joined them. Now, we have this short account in which there's an opportunity, which actually turns into opposition, which the result is an open heart. See that there? They all start with O. Okay. Did that all by myself. Okay. <laughs> Probably led by the Holy Spirit. So here's the thing. The opportunity turned into opposition, which the result was actually an open heart. So let's start with this, the opportunity. The opportunity, Acts 13, 6 through 7. It says, when they had gone through the whole island as far as Pados, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. So we, here we have this false prophet, which we're going to get into in a few moments. But this man, Sergius Paulus, he was a proconsul. Now, a proconsul was a Roman official placed over an entire province. So this is a very important man. We have an intelligent man, and apparently he heard about Barnabas and Saul and wanted to hear the word of God. What an opportunity. An important, notable person, high profile, hears about Barnabas and Saul and what they believe. And he says, come here. Tell me. Tell me. The truth is, when influential and notable people believe something, it gets the intention of others, doesn't it? We see this with celebrities, right? We see this with celebrities. Did you hear that so-and-so believes this? Or, you know, people, I mean, a celebrity can say a few things, and, you know, the whole culture listens. Oh, what's that? It doesn't matter what they say. They're listening. What is that celebrity? What does this notable person believe? So they listen in. Now, have you ever had an opportunity like this? Maybe not an influential person, but someone just basically wanted to hear what you have to believe, what you, ha what you believe. They, just, they j just give you an opportunity. They open the door for you to walk right in. They're like, hey, can you tell me what you believe? This has happened to me so many times, and these are the best. I love these times. They're like, hey, listen, tell me what you believe. I remember a long time ago, one of our neighbors, the, the kids hang out with, and um, the, the guy came over, and we were just chatting, and he was just like, I have a few questions for you. Now tell me about your church. Like, tell me about what you believe. Tell I was like, man, I was like, I love this. You know what I mean? It wasn't like this, oh, let's debate. It was like, hey, what do you believe? 
I see that you're a pastor. You're doing this or that. For you guys, I see that you go to church. I see that you volunteer for ministries. What do you believe? Some people like this Sergius Paulus guy, he was just like, he was interested. He, Barnabas and Saul had this amazing opportunity to witness to this man. But not only that, witness to a man who had official status, was prominent, was notable in this province. But of course, anytime we have an opportunity, there's always the probability that there's going to be opposition, right? Sometimes we have an opportunity. Maybe somebody comes up to you and says, oh, tell me what you believe. But then there's somebody else hanging out, and they're like, well, yeah, I don't believe that. And then they start trying to get in that person's ear. Well, in, in a sense, that's what happens. But Eliamus, Bar-Jesus, actually the same guy, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul, that's Sergius Paulus, away from the faith. So now we have this false prophet, magician. He opposes what's happening. Now Luke doesn't say exactly what he did, but Luke tells us the goal. Seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. He didn't want him to believe. He didn't want him to ask questions. He didn't want him to get the answers that he wanted. So now Saul takes a deep dive and gets to the root of where this opposition comes from. Let's look. It's the root of where this opposition comes from. But Saul who was also called Paul, so this is the first time we see him called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. You son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Dang, <laughs> right? <laughs> that is... A huge confrontation right there. I mean, the guy basically said, you're on mission from the devil. You're on mission from the devil. This is what we call spiritual warfare. This is what we call spiritual warfare. Notice in the beginning of the passage, we find that the Holy Spirit is the one that sent Saul and Barnabas out. Anytime there is spiritual work being done in the service of God, the enemy, the devil, will try to oppose it because his goal is to keep people away from trusting Jesus. That's the goal, to keep people away from hearing that we are sinners in need of a Savior. I mean, our culture has done a bang-up job on this. No, you're not a sinner. You just do whatever you feel like doing, right? Your truth is your truth, right? Do whatever you feel like doing, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else, right? Your truth is your truth. You can do whatever you feel like doing. So basically now, all of a sudden, we're trying to make people not sinners, okay? And the truth is, as Christians, we're trying to make people forgiven sinners, okay? By the grace of God, he forgives us. So basically, the gospel tells us, right, we're all sinners that need a Savior, Jesus is that Savior that died on the cross to pay the price for our sins, offering forgiveness to all who believe, offering eternal life to all who believe. Jesus didn't just die on that cross, right? He rose from the grave to prove that he is God, and the scriptures tell us this, all who believe will have eternal life. Guess who doesn't want people to know that? Satan, 
and his demons. There's always going to be opposition. When you get involved in ministries, when you get involved in doing the work of the Lord, you better believe that there's going to be opposition. You better believe that Satan and his demons do not want you to do the work of God. Paul later warns us in Ephesians 6, very famous passage. Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on a whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the pre this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of the evil one in the heavenly places. You know, I've spoken on this before, but there's a few views that Christians have when they hear about or experience spiritual warfare. The first is this. Some people get obsessed with it. They blame everything on the devil, right? The devil made me do it, okay? They have no personal responsibility. The devil made me do it. Or anything in any, everything in anything that's negative that takes place is from the devil. Some of you maybe that are familiar with the Puritans, this was kind of like their stance, okay? So basically they discounted anything like mental illness, physical sickness, saying it's all demon possession, it's all from the devil, okay? This is unhealthy, right? And it's an unhealthy obsession, ignores the fact that we live in a sin-cursed world, ignores human free will and responsibility, and it actually attributes more power to the devil and his demons than they actually have. Okay, let me just tell you, it's not like God and Satan, two equals, okay? That's not how it works, okay? Satan and his demons, they have some power, but it's nowhere near the power of God. So second is some people just discount spiritual warfare altogether. You know, maybe that's you. Maybe you're sitting here like, oh, now we're going to talk about this devil stuff, okay? Here's the thing. It is real, okay? The scriptures teach about it. We can't just pick and choose what we like from the scripture and be like, oh, I'll just rip a few pages out. Well, you'd be ripping a lot of pages out if you got rid of the theology of Satan and his demons and that, the, the doctrines of the, those things. So second is some people discount spiritual warfare altogether. The problem with discounting it is you're ignoring the scriptures. Third is people are afraid of it. They're afraid of it. We can thank our culture for that, right? They put out these horror movies and these series and stuff like that that scare people, right? You watch that stuff and yeah, you can't sleep, okay? You watch that stuff and you're scared. You're afraid of the paranormal. But the fourth in the biblical understanding is this. Spiritual warfare is happening. We need to be aware of it. We need to pray against it. And we need to realize what John taught in 1 John 4, 4. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Okay? That's the truth. So there's going to be opposition. We don't need to be afraid of it. We need to pray against it. We need to realize it's there, realize it's coming, not get discouraged by it, not give up because of it, but just keep on going because opposition will come. And if you give up, basically you might be turning your back on what God has called you to do. So let's see how Paul responds. 
And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you will be blind. He's talking to this false prophet, this Eliamus Bar-Jesus guy. He says, and now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you. And you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him. And he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. So Saul, Paul, by the power of the Holy Spirit, strikes this guy blind. He handles the opposition with the power of God. Really not much to say here. I mean, we know that we can't do stuff like this, right? But this is what happened. He just struck this guy blind. But the ultimate result was our final point. An open heart, right? Here's what happens. Then the proconsul, remember Sergius Paulus? He believed when he saw what occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now notice this. Seeing what happened was not the main reason why he believed. It was also the teaching. Okay, when, when, when Saul and Barnabas came and they shared God's word, his heart was already open. Okay, he invited them. He was hearing the teaching. And now all of a sudden seeing this, seeing this opposition, seeing the opposition be squelched like that or be brought down like that, it says this, when he saw what occurred, but he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. See, we pray that people's hearts are open when we tell them about Jesus so they trust him. That's what we pray for. We pray that people have an open heart like this man did. But how open is your heart? Maybe you don't trust him yet. Maybe you are not considering Jesus to be who he said he is. If that's you, you need to trust him. Okay? You need to allow him to come into your life. You need to trust him. Or maybe, for many of you, you trust him, but you're not following him. Which means your heart's kind of closed. Like, you, you opened your heart to him, but now you're like, okay, Jesus, like, I'm good there. I got an eternal insurance policy, and I'm good. But now my heart's closed because I'm just going to live my life the way that I want. Are you open to following him? Are you open to serving him? A lot of this passage, right, talked about the ministry of these believers. Are you open to that? Or are you the type of person that loves to come here and sit here and say, let's let everybody else do everything. And I'm just going to come and be an, like an observer or part of an audience. Are you open to turning from sin patterns in your life that keep you from being obedient to God? Are you open to turning from them? 